All right, what's going on, guys? So today I'm sitting down with Jonathan Goodman. Uh, you guys might know him from the PTDC, and we're going to talk about some common training mistakes, uh, misconceptions, and just a little bit about uh, the fitness industry in general on IG. So first off, uh, do you prefer John or Jonathan? John's fine talking to you, man. Um, oh, cool. Jonathan, if anything's published, because I had to make that decision at one point. And, and when I started, you know, I wrote my first book when I was 24, right? So I, I had this like, this complex where I felt like I needed to be more of an adult that I was. So I feel like Jonathan makes me sound more grown up. Uh, now I'm not as plexed about it, but. Yeah, no, we've definitely, uh, <laughs> I've definitely gone through that as well in terms of my writing, like uh, writing for T nation was a little bit of an issue actually, because a lot of the stuff that I write is a little bit more technical kind of research. Yeah. So right. I started writing for them and they were like, they're like, yeah, we're not going to publish this. It's way too like full of jargon. And I was like, oh man. So learning how to scale that can definitely be an issue. And just like you said, because you kind of want to seem professional sometimes. But uh, uh, anyways. It's know your audience, right? Like, Yeah, yeah, exactly. T-Nation knows its audience pretty well at this point. Yeah, no, they definitely do. But uh, that being said, can you give yourself a little bit of an introduction to maybe the people who aren't familiar with you and some of the work that you do? Sure. I was a personal trainer for eight years. I wrote a book for trainers called Ignite the Fire uh, when I was 24 years old. Uh, this book came out in 2011. Uh, from that book, I started a website called the Personal Trainer Development Center, where the goal was to bring just the wisdom of the industry together, collective in one place. Uh, we've had over 20 million people visit the website. That book, Ignite the Fire, is, is still the top ranking book on Amazon uh, for personal trainers. And since then, um, I did what I think you should do with a platform. You should listen to your audience, figure out what they need, and then build the solution that they needed. And so I built the first ever course for online fitness in 2012. Uh, and I wrote the first ever textbook for online fitness in 2016. And, um, and there was a whole bunch of other books and conferences and stuff in between there. But that's the important stuff. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it's kind of wild, actually, because I remember when I was first getting started out in the fitness industry, um, I had some of the people who I looked up to kind of talking about the PTTC as a, as a resource for like how to run your business and different things like that. And at that time, it was just kind of a, a thing in passing, same with Teen Nation or whatever, and, and all these other things. And then, you know, 10 years later, here I am chatting with you. So yeah. it's kind of a sort of a, a weird experience, you know? It's a, I mean, it is and it isn't, right? Like it's a big industry, but it's a small industry. Um, the, the good yeah, people sure. get to know each other pretty quick. And, um, and, and when you start doing... I'm sure you've seen it, right? When you start doing good work the right way, yeah. but things start to happen and you start making connections. And then folks who have been around for a little bit of time recognize that, yeah. right? Like, like game respects game. I mean, we, we recognize that. We know, we can tell, like I, you know, I'm, I've been around in online fitness for 11 years. I'm basically a great, great grandfather at this point. Like the online fitness industry turns over every two to three years because so many people just search these quick hits, these, you know, get rich quick, get rich quick type schemes. Folks come and go all the time. And, um, and so I've seen so many people come and go. I know exactly when somebody comes along, I could recognize when somebody comes along and you're just like, I can't even explain what this is, but this is good shit. Like, like you've seen so many people squat and deadlift at this point. You don't even know what, you, can't, you probably can't even explain technically what's going on in their body before you immediately know exactly what it is that you need to fix and that there's something going on. And then you can take a step back and you can you know, figure it out, right? But I can, I can look at people who are just doing work online and I can just be like, 
nah, there's something good there. This is somebody I want to get to know. Yeah. Yeah, man. So I guess we'll just kind of dive right into it. Uh, I know one of the things we were talking about was basically just dumb shit. People, you know, not just seeing people, but like we also used to do when we were, when we were young versus, right. you know, how we're coaching now and, and what that kind of path actually looked like. Um, so I remember when I first started training, that was like, Paul Quinn was huge back then. I mean, he's still kind okay. of a big name now, you know, but um Back in the day, I know he was really, really big and he was, uh, you know, the one who kind of sort of identified, or at least to my knowledge, he was the one who started, you know, initially identified like the, the rep range for hypertrophy, for strength, okay. for strength endurance, and then pure endurance and all that stuff. And so that was kind of like what I was learning before. Now, obviously, there's a lot more ambiguity around those like kind sure. of hard fast rules, but that, that's just kind of one example off the top of my head where there's so many things that you know, I used to do previously that I didn't necessarily understand. And so what were some of those things for you when you were first starting out? Not even necessarily like as, as a coach, but even just in your own training, right? Right. I mean, the, the biggest thing is I used to just beat the living shit out of my body, right? <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm a father now. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm not old. I'm 36, but like not 22 years old. Uh, my body definitely doesn't heal the same way. And so understanding how to manage volume and recovery has been really, really major in the last couple of years, particularly of training. Uh, and I'm happy to get into that a lot more. There's just been a lot of stuff along the way. I mean, I was, I was very lucky just in where I found myself. You know, I went to university at the University of Western Ontario. Uh, I worked in the university gym for three years as a personal trainer. And for some reason, in that little pocket of Ontario, within about two hours, a lot of the leading research was being done on caffeine as nergogenic aid, creatine supplementation, and even a lot of the protein synthesis stuff by Stu Phillips. Um, you know, you basically had Stu Phillips, Stu McGill, and Peter Lemon doing a lot of that work. Peter Lemon was the PhD advisor for John Brody and a bunch of other people. I think he might have been Mike Isretel as well, although don't quote me on that. Um, and so it was really interesting. Because I found myself working at the gym where all of the PhD students that were doing the leading work on creatine, for example, at that time, were doing all of the research. And, and if I kept the gym open for them after midnight a little bit, they'd let me look over their shoulder and listen in. And so it was really, really cool to get that kind of insight. So I, I was in you know, the early days of creatine as nogogenic aid of a lot of the protein synthesis research that was going on with Stu Phillips. Um, and even, um, even the low back stuff with Dr. Stu McGill, right. was just down the street was an hour away. And so I was deeply interested in that stuff. I would, I would listen to these guys and then I'd go home and I'd read all the research, you know, and, um, and so the early days of branch chain amino acids, you know, that's one you asked, you know, what did I believe was true back then that, you know, we know, like I was, I was all for branch chain amino acids, man. Cause I read all of the studies, all of the original studies that showed that they, there might be something really here. Um, and uh, yeah, even, um, you know, I was pretty close. I had applications in to do a master's and PhD in um, in, in basically trying to reduce 
the, the reduction in the satellite cell pool or possibly even regenerate it in old age atrophy and potential therapies to, to improve that in order to maintain and improve you know, the mTOR rapamycin pathway. Mm-hmm. Like I was deep in all that stuff in the early days. And now I realize as I've gotten a little bit older that perhaps a lot of that stuff doesn't matter that much other than just in pure research. Oh, and maybe no. you should just lift shit. <laughs> well, that, that's kind of the funny thing too, is like you, you said a lot of interesting things there. So like, I feel like the vast majority of what most coaches do with, with their clients and like good athletes do is probably only about 25% of what they actually know, you know, so much. Not of even, Dude, not even 25%. Well, I don't know. I'm just saying, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's like when you start talking about like all these different things, when you start talking about should you ice, should you not? Is it going to downregulate some of the, you know, metabolic signaling post workout? Is it going to do this? Can do that? And then you actually look at the magnitude of effect of some of these things. And it's just like it's so small. And then people start talking about should you load creatine or should you not load creatine? It's like, okay, well, if if the benefits are cumulative and the benefits are so small that you're really going to only notice them after several months of, of training, does that loading phase even matter? Or is it washed out? It's just like a lot of it's just like intellectual sparring kind of, which is fun and it's interesting and, and it's important. But then at the same time, sometimes I think people get caught up in that and they think that that is training and, and they, they forget that training is training, you know? And so it's like, if I look at, if I look at a skinny guy and he's talking a lot of shit about stuff, I'm like, ah, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe not, you know? And then I look at someone like Dr. Mike, for instance, it's like, he's talking a lot of shit about really, really smart stuff, but he's mm-hmm. also fucking huge. I'm like, okay, right. there's something there. And so it's this kind of weird balance of making sure that you know a lot of stuff, but you're also actually implementing it. Yeah. And then even actually one thing you said about like what effective training actually is, you know, I think that's one thing that people really struggle with. They're like, what, what constitutes a good session? Cause the number of times I've had athletes hit me up and be like, Hey, today felt really easy. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Like I wrote it. I, it's, it's, it's your, your secondary day. It's, it's primarily there for skill development. And, and so you can recover. And they're like, but I went up a little heavier so that I could, you know, actually just feel a little bit more of the weight. And I'm like, okay, great. Well, that's why you're going to be plateaued in, you know, in the next couple of weeks, right. you know, is, is, and so it's like, I think sometimes people struggle around quantifying what makes an actual good training session. Is it, you know, is this hard? Is it that burn? Is it failure? And you know, what sport are you even in? Are you uh, a field sport athlete? Are you a strength athlete? Are you a bodybuilder? And so I think that's kind of something that would be interesting for you to kind of touch on as well um, in terms of quantifying what that actually means <laughs> in, in the broader picture of the program, not just was this a stimulative training session, right? Right. Yeah, I'll talk about that in a second. One, one thing that you said I, I, I wanted to make a note on real quick because I think it's such a fascinating point is at one point you got to just lift shit, right? And if you think about what, what's always been interesting to me is that research always catches up to what people who are actually doing that thing day in, day out already know. Yeah. And there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting precedents for this. You think about, you know, Thomas Myers, you think about the myofascial slings throughout the body. That's yoga. Like literally, that's yoga. Like you look at the yoga flows. I mean, yogis figured out without knowing that they're myofascial slings. Yogis yeah. figured out that the body has a flow, right? A thousand years ago. Because they were so in tune 
with their body. The bodybuilders, you hear stories of what Arnold and Franco used to do back in the day. I mean, they would just basically beat the crap out of their muscle in some new way and just feel where they were sore and figure out, you know, what that trained. Like these guys were so, mostly guys um, back then. So I'm going to say guys, you know, these guys were so in tune with their bodies that they figured out stuff that really worked, right? And the research has now caught up. They couldn't necessarily explain it in scientific terms. And, um, and I think there's this weird, particularly with, with social media now where everybody has a microphone, there's this weird juxtaposition here between those that do day in and day out and those that read a lot of books. And even those that read a lot of books, you know, a lot of their social equity is based upon their perceived status by other by feeling like other people feel that they're smart. You know, like, like whether or not you think that I'm smart, Dan has absolutely no impact on my self-worth. What matters is whether I think that you think that I'm smart. Yeah. And so if you think about that in terms of, of social media, and then you understand a little bit about cognitive dissonance, and you look at all these debates that are taking place online, particularly with training, it doesn't even matter whether some person's subjectively wrong or not, because they feel like other people feel like they're smart because they're using big words, right? I don't give a shit if you know the word for something. Can you explain to me how it works and how you make it work? Yeah. Right. Um, I don't care if you don't know the name. For it. It's like, that's why I always love watching bird watchers. It's like, I don't care that you know what the name of that boat is. Like, <laughs> like what does that mean? Um, so, so I, you know, I, I think there's a place for just becoming really sort of in tune with your body and you got to put in the reps to figure that out. Right. Um, it's yeah. major. Yeah. No, 100%. And it yeah it ends up kind of putting the like and it's it's sort of funny because i'm definitely in both camps like i love nerding out on a lot of this stuff and just reading shit that i know i will never use and has virtually zero application to anyone but it's interesting you know and then at the same time it's but you know i i also find myself falling into that trap of like learn 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 i know all this stuff and i'm like oh shit i'm forgetting to apply it you know and so it always kind of has to be this like really interesting balance of, of, you know, acquisition and, and execution. And like, I think that's one thing that a lot of the times, like when, when people are starting out or even if they're like, you know, like several years in, they tend to kind of focus on one a little bit more than the other. And they tend to like deprioritize one, whether it's like, Oh, I'm really interested in like the science one train intelligently. And it's like, well, training intelligently is usually training hard. Right. You know, right. Yeah. aggressively, relentlessly, aggressively. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Consistently. Right. Yeah, man. Um, it, look, there, there's kind of, you know, you asked me a question before that I'm, that I'm happy to answer. There's kind of two batches of clients that trainers work with, right? There are people that you're trying to put on a stage or a podium. And then there are general population clients and they're very, very different approaches. I, I had a good opportunity to work with both, right? Like my clientele was everybody from, getting kids ready for the NHL draft to Olympic gymnasts to Canada's top jazz musician to, you know, a doctor who, you know, works in the ER. Right. Yeah. And, um, and so it was really interesting working with those people at the same time. And I think anybody who trains athletes also works with general pop, you know, there's very few people who are just athletic trainers. 
And from an athletic training or a performance training, let's say, and, you know, I never worked with, with competitive lifting, but, um, but I mean, you're trying to put people on a podium the same way. It seems to me that today there's basically no competitive advantage in terms of the data, you know, like, like the data and how the body works, it's pretty democratized information. I think back in Poliquin's day, you know, perhaps knowing more actually really helped. Uh, it seems to me that now it's kind of democratized, right? What, what sets people apart is perhaps creativity or just a deeper know-how of just without even really being able to explain it amongst the coach, like how the body works. Whereas for a general population client, it's more about getting, you know, connecting, getting better at connecting what the client needs to do back to the actual reason for being there. Anybody who's worked with general pop knows that whatever they say when they come in, what they say their goals are, are usually pretty superficial and not actually their goals. Yeah. Like somebody who comes in and they say, you know, I want to lose five pounds, want to lose 10 pounds. I'm like, okay, you know, tell me a little bit more about that. Okay. What would, what would that mean to you? Oh, can you remember a time in your life when you felt that way? And you just go deeper with that line of questioning, getting into why. And, and the reason for that is quite, is quite simple is because you really want your only goal to me, a general pop trainer's only goal is to get a client to, to, to forge within a client, a lifelong love of exercise, right? To get them to want to show up because that comes first. Doesn't the, the quality and the importance of the quality of a program you give to somebody who's general pop pales in comparison to the importance of your ability to get the client to want to do that program, right? And so if you go deeper, you know, eventually the client and all clients have something like this. The client will say something. You're like, oh, that's stupid. And you're like, oh, tell me about it. Like, I'd really love to know. She's like, oh, years ago, I was on this cruise and I wore this black dress. And I still have the black dress. And oh, so stupid. Oh, my husband couldn't keep his hands off of me. We almost didn't even get out the door, right? But we did. We went to dinner and I could just feel the eyes of the other women being jealous of me on that ship, right? I could feel that all the men wanted to be with me and all the women wanted to, wanted to be me. And my husband couldn't keep his hands off of me. And, you know, I just... I just love to be able to wear that dress again. Well, boom, like you got it, right? Like now, if you want to get that client to do a goblet squat, let's say, because they're new in the gym, you don't give them a goblet squat because it's hypertrophy day one exercise 1A, right? Your workout name is now the black dress workout. When you're explaining the goblet squat to them, you're going to them and you're saying something like, all right, Mary, so first exercise that I chose to you is something called the goblet squat. Now I'm going to show you how to do it in a second, but I want to tell you about why it's important that you're doing this exercise. See what you're doing is you're working a lot of big muscles in the legs and in the glutes. They're big muscles, of your body, they're going to stimulate what's called a strong thermic effective exercise, right? It doesn't actually matter that much how many calories you burn in the gym. What matters for fat loss is what happens afterwards because your body has worked so hard. And in order to do that, you want to work a lot of big muscles, right? And so because of that, I've chosen the goblet squat because it increases the stomach effect of exercise in order to help you lose more fat, in order to help you fit into the black dress. You down? Like, 
She's going to crush. She's going to be doing those goblet squats at home at night now. Right. It's just a matter of it's sales, right? Everything that you do is sales. Every time you want to get a client to train at sales, an athlete is a little bit different. Yeah, there's buying is super, super important. I, uh, I don't know if you know who John Kiley is. Um, no. he's, uh, he's a pretty high level sport coach and he's had a few interesting debates with even actually with, with Mike um, on the RTS podcast, I think it was. Okay. On so essentially he, he released a, a paper that was a, a critique of, you know, modern day periodization. Uh, mm. And essentially he was like, look, we can't necessarily, you know, plan training because there's so many variables that go into it. And he talks about like allostatic load and a whole bunch of things. And one of the things that he was really, really adamant about, and this is kind of shocking was he was like, or to me, it was kind of shocking was he was like, I think sometimes that, you know, the, the amount of buy-in or belief that you get from your athlete can be more important than the actual program itself, which yep. is, is kind of insane to hear. But at the same time, there's a lot of truth to that because it's what like, do you think? I, I, I get what he's saying. And I genuinely like, if, if you're going along the premise of like, what can you do to achieve a result? I think it has mm-hmm. a lot more to do with effort. Yep. than it does what you're specifically doing. Like if you're using bands or chains or this or that, right. I don't think it really matters. I think you can get there a bunch of different ways. So I tend to agree. And I think that buy-in is, is kind of that key to, to increase output, you know? And, hmm. and like you were saying, you know, all of a sudden that's attached to something. They have this, you know, really strong buy-in and they're like, hey, this means something to me. This goal is important. You know, maybe, maybe they, uh, I know this is a really common one. I know people, um, and I, I, sorry, I'm going to kind of double back. You were talking about how there's very few people who exclusively coach athletes. And that's true. Cause I get this all the time. People are like, Oh, I know you only coach high level athletes. And I'm like, it's like a mix. Like I probably only have about like 30% of my athletes are actual high level athletes. Like we're talking international Such a misconception. Yeah. Because training both- athletes exclusively yeah. would be the shittiest job in the world. So much work. Like training, training Canada's top jazz musician. Fantastic. Right. Great client when she's not touring in Japan for three months. And then you got to have her Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 10 AM slot back open for her when she comes back. Training Zach Hyman for the NHL draft was amazing, except it's only six months. And then he's going to play in college. (laughs) Right. Like it's just not, I mean, you got to, you like Pete Dupuis and, and Eric Christie talk about this all the time. Right, their money, Crusty Sports Performance, their money's made from their general pop, right? Their athletes, right, yeah. you know, bring in the general pop, but their money's made from the general pop. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was just kind of like an interesting aside. <laughs> well, but it's true, right? A lot of young coaches come into this field saying, I want to train. I did, right? I came into this field and I said, I have a kinesiology degree. I want to train athletes. I'm going to, I went and got my CSCS. Right. I, I read the NSCA journal every single month religiously. I read all the papers. I read Tudor Bumpa's, you know, periodization textbook, like everything. Right. Like I went deep in this kind of stuff. Yeah. And then I started training athletes and, and actors. Um, I trained because Toronto was a pretty good, you know, acting movie scene. So I started training actors as well. And um, and I was like, this is kind of shitty. <laughs> like, I like doing this because it's kind of fun. Like, it's fun going to Massey Hall and seeing your client perform. Right. It's, it's fun. You know, Zach Hyman has been fun following his career. Like he's crushing it. He's on the first line with Connor McDavid right now. Yeah. Like it's fun knowing that I played a very small part in that. Um, but 
it's it's got to be more common. You know, I have a I have a friend who it's the same thing. Always wanted to train athletes, right? Did his master's degree, did everything that you need to do, and um, he's doing really well now. He was the assistant SNC coach for the Calgary Flames, uh, and then he got promoted to uh, to the head strength and conditioning coach for one of the AHL teams, so the first level below the NHL, and then the next rung up is you know SNC for the NHL. He's been in this fifteen years earning like $35,000 a year mm. in the hopes that one day now, right. He'll get to be a head strength conditioning coach for a professional Well, he's on a professional team, but for, for an NHL team. And yeah. it's like, that was always his vision. That's always what he wanted. It's like, great, but Holy crap. He had to pay his dues, man. Yeah. It's definitely much harder to monetize that because most athletes tend to spend like serious athletes. Anyways, usually tend to spend most of their money on on their training but they're also really taking a career hit in most Mm -hmm. cases anyways because they're they're so focused on those goals yeah and And the top top athletes yeah um can't train with you anyway they have to work with the teams contractually and so even the top guys like there's nothing you can do about it right even if you train with them when they become a top guy they're not contractually going to be allowed to train with you. Yeah. Well, yeah. Unless it's the off season, right? Like, well, I guess it depends on the contract. It depends on who, you know, like the top, top, top guys basically say I'm training with who I want. And then, you know, like LeBron James, for example, you know, has his his stuff, but, but most of the top ones, um, most, most of like the all-stars and stuff like that don't have that. Like the teams just won't allow that. <laughs> the, the top, top guys could basically just say, I'm going to play for another team. If you, you know, don't let me. Um, yeah. Yeah, no. And I mean, buy-in is just so important. It's, it's like the, it, it can be kind of tricky because it, like you said, it, it really just depends on the individual and, and their subjective experience. Like what do they, what do they really value? And a lot of the times, mm-hmm. like you said, you kind of just keep having to probe and ask why, 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 why. And I think a lot of the times too, because I have had situations where I've had someone come into me and they're like, they're like, I want to lose weight. And then I start asking questions and they're like, and I remember the woman saying that she's like, my husband called me fat for the first time we've been married uh, for 15 years. And that was her big reason. And then uh, I was like, okay. And so we kind of started chatting a little bit more. And I was like, do you actually want to get fit? Or do you just want to like feel good? Cause they're not the same. Like, yes, one absolutely in most instances will affect the other, right? Like people are always like, Oh, they're unrelated. I don't think they're unrelated at all. If you look good, you're probably going to feel quite a bit better, you know, sure. and that is a very powerful catalyst to real internal change. So I don't want to dismiss it altogether, but that being said, I think it's also really important to find that motivating factor because if you're just doing it because you're trying to like, Run There's away some deeper shit in that relationship that she's got to do. Yeah, with. yeah. <laughs> and by the end of it, she did sign up for training, but then after like a little bit, she actually changed her goals entirely because she's like, you know what? I don't give a fuck if this guy thinks this. You know, that was just me being insecure. What I actually want is this. And right. now she was on this complete new goal, and she didn't end up losing weight and all this stuff. You know, it was great. But um, I think that if we genuinely would have just assumed that that her motivating factor was she wanted to get slim because her husband called her fat i think i i think there would have been a lot more friction through that entire process because 
it was again, different motivational styles, right? Like, are you running towards something? You're running away from something. Right. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's deep. That's deep. The, the amount of times when I heard similar stories like that, particularly because we're just coming out of American Thanksgiving where clients would come afterwards and, you know, they, Oh yeah. Happy there was some, there was, there'd be some comment, you know, from a family member at Thanksgiving or something. Yeah. And, um, or people approaching those, if somebody made a comment previously or whatever it is, wanted to basically like show their family and show up to Thanksgiving and like, you know, be the, be the fit one or whatever it is now at Thanksgiving. Um, it's this deep stuff there. Like, Oh, I want my in-laws to stop having snide remarks at me every time I reach for dessert. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's some, there's some really like nasty deep stuff there, but that's pretty common, unfortunately. Right. Even as a trainer, I write about it. It's like my, the line, I, I don't think that there's ever been a family dinner that I've had where somebody hasn't used the term, oh, John doesn't eat that. His body's a temple. I'm like, guys, we've been doing this for 20 years. Like, <laughs> we're still doing this, you know? Like, I'm a pretty, I feel like I'm a pretty regular guy. I like dessert, but like, it doesn't bother me. I don't care. But is, is it still weird that I exercise and, and eat somewhat healthy most of the time? Like, is that weird? Should that be weird? Shouldn't that, that be normal? You that posted right? that the other day about yeah. like the norms yeah. and how it's funny that exercising, eating well, and taking care of your body, that's the stigmatized thing. That was like, you. like basically what a human should do yeah. is like weird, right? And can you imagine if the way that like, not even like excessively healthy people, like, like somebody who exercises in some way every day, not even going to the gym, just like moves their body in some way every day, eats vegetables and is remotely healthy and tries to go to bed on time and not watch Netflix until two in the morning every night is like the weird person who should be stigmatized. Like, can you imagine if that person then goes to somebody else and like fat shames them? Yeah. Like, obviously we're not like, obviously you wouldn't do that. Cause that's like a shitty thing to do as a human being. But it's weird that one of them is like stigmatized and one of them isn't. And what's normal is the thing that for some reason is weird. Yeah. Like I think about that a lot. It's like, how messed yeah. up is that? Well, it's funny. Cause like, so I don't drink, I don't do drugs. Um, and like that, and I, I never really did. Like, I mean, yes, I've, I've, had drinks come, come to mexico we'll have some tequila <laughs> yeah exactly like i've obviously had drinks before i've been sure, drunk sure. before but it's like i've never really enjoyed it it's never been a big part of my life and like now i mean i'll have maybe one drink every two years something like that like yep. it, it's really really rare because i just don't enjoy it and that's yep. it and it's funny because if if i like uh let's say i meet someone i go on a date or something like that you know and you'll use the euphemism you'll be like hey you want to grab a drink or something like that we show up and then i order maybe a diet coke or a tea and they're like oh you're not having a drink and i'm like no i actually don't drink and you'd be shocked at how often they'll be like oh were you an alcoholic or something like that and i'm like right. what i was like no i just don't drink like i just don't really enjoy it you know and it's it's so funny and this is all obviously like way pre-covid or whatever but mm -hmm. It, it's so much less like it's it's weird if you don't drink it's yep. weird if you don't smoke weed or do mushrooms or whatever you know what i mean i don't know what people's vices are but 
drinking, I'd say, would be the, the really big one. And so, I, and I still get it. So they're like, really, you don't drink ever. Like, wow, you're so, and I'm like, I just don't enjoy it. Like, yeah. do you enjoy scrubbing floors? And they're like, no. And I'm like, okay, that's how I feel about drinking. It's not like a, you know, I'm this like ascetic monk who's giving up all pleasures or whatever. Like, I just don't enjoy right. it. That's it. But then people are just so weird about it. Do you, do you say, but I like sex and then give them the wink and the gun? Yeah, yeah I, I that don't. That would be my life. That would be I my should. life for yeah, sure. Exactly. For sure. <laughs> How about we go home and watch a bad movie, both of us we've already seen? Huh? Huh? Yeah. No. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of the same way, right? I, I just, I mean, I don't, especially I've lived in kind of warm climates basically all year round for the yeah. last like nine years. Like I'm in Mexico now and like, it's nice having a cold beer. But again, I mean, I maybe have a drink once every two or three weeks here. Um, but what I really would love and what I think there should be more of is I'll pay as if I were drinking, right? It's not a money thing. Like if I'm going out with friends to watch the game or just for a social thing, yeah. I am quite happy paying the restaurant as if I were drinking. Yeah. Right. I just don't want the beer. <laughs> and so like I do that with coffee shops and, and uh, you know, there's a coffee shop here that I go to uh, somewhat often and I'll sit there for a few hours and I tip them like 200, 300% every time I go. Uh, yeah, I, I do that too, right. because it's like, that's kind of how they make their living. So I'm like, well, I'm sure. a, you know, but I'm sitting there for a long time. Like that. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm sitting there for a long time. I don't particularly want their food because their food isn't great. Yeah. I like, you know, I like their coffee, but I'm only going to get one coffee. Mm-hmm. But I'm quite happy paying them for the right to sit in their establishment. Yeah. Right? But it's not like a spoken thing. I actually... I would love if there was a restaurant that was basically like, hey, if you're not drinking, totally cool, right? Feel free to contribute. Like you don't have to, but like feel free to contribute an extra 10 bucks to your bill. That would make me feel so much better about sitting there for all three periods of a hockey game, for example. I just leave a big tip. You know, I do, but that's after the fact. Yeah. And I feel awkward all the way through. So I agree with you, right? And if you go back and they know that, then that's one thing. I guess it doesn't matter to me because I don't really have emotions like most people. So <laughs> I'll feel good. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. There's, there's definitely a lot of like interesting paradigms that, that happen in the fitness industry. And even like, uh, I guess, kind of coming back to, to one of the things that I've heard that's actually pretty common is like bringing, bringing prepped meals into the office. This is something I know is, can be a, a big issue in my experience, more for men than women okay. where they don't want people questioning why they're doing it. They don't want to be like, Oh, why are you doing that? They don't like saying they're on a diet. They don't like saying that they, you know, want to lose weight or anything like that. Like it's something they're insecure about. Like I know I've had mm. clients who have, have hid that from their partners and other people to me, that doesn't really make sense. Like, I, I understand why they're doing it, but I don't, I, I don't really, let's say, subscribe to that, right? And I was actually having a conversation with with uh, someone I know as well, and they were saying that it's very common with their own clients. They they train predominantly women, um, mm-hmm. especially people who have like disordered eating behavior and stuff like that. And so obviously, that's a little bit of a different, uh, you know, kind of water to navigate. But right. it's so interesting, like the public perception of, of fitness and what people think it is like people still think that personal trainers and coaches 
are just people yell and count reps, you know? And, right. and I don't know, I guess like what, what's your take on, on these things still being like a weird issue, you know? <laughs> um, I mean, it is, I feel it like I, so, you know, I rented an, an office out of a co-working space for the last couple of years. And, uh, and so we had, you know, we had our office, but it was, it was a full co- co-working space. There were other offices, there were other people who were using it for the day. And I was just about the only person every single day who didn't order my food from Uber Eats. Yeah. And, um, and almost every day there was some sort of a comment on that. I had a salad or whatever it was. Like I'm just taking leftovers from the night before. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I didn't, again, I didn't feel weird about it. I don't really care, but I, it's weird that that is weird. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's when you, when so. You think about the fundamentals of what it is. It's crazy. It's weird that that's even from a purely economic standpoint. Yeah, you can't order a meal from Uber Eats for less than twenty five dollars in Toronto. Right? Yeah, yeah. Even if you so, order like a five dollar sandwich, with they're like, oh, the tip, and then plus this, it just ends up being like around twenty bucks. It's yeah. like it's like twenty twenty five <laughs> bucks, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, and I mean, you know, take the, take the receptionist for example, like she makes minimum wage right? She's eating Uber Eats every single day and going to get an expensive coffee next door every day. She's spending $30 every single day. Yeah, That's a quarter of what she makes every single day. So from a purely economic standpoint, it's insane, let alone the health. I mean, even if you're ordering healthy food, although most of it, you know, I, I, I would expect isn't. Um, I don't know. I mean, where do I stand on it? It's, I think, you know, like, it's weird that it's weird. Um, I, yeah, I don't know much more. <laughs> it's weird that it's weird. I think the more people who do it, you know, kind of kind of normalized for sure. Um, but it is difficult because socially, what you do is you go to eat out with people. One of the reasons that I love living where we live in Mexico is because we live sort of in, I mean, I'll call it a commune. That's kind of a weird, like, you know, culty vibe, but we live in a complex. There's 21 units, right? Our building has four units in it. Three of the four units, including us, are families with kids around the same age. We just leave our doors open to kids running back and forth. We'll do on Thanksgiving. We just did a big cookout. There's two big charcoal grills down by the pool. And we did a big cookout. Like the social stuff is bringing a picnic down to the beach. Yeah. And um, it's, it's a beautiful way to live, right? It's centered around being outside, being together versus, hey, we're so overscheduled that we have to, you know, make plans in order to be together weeks out. And we're going to, it, because of that, because we have to make plans so far out, it needs to be an event. And because it needs to be an event, it needs to be a celebration where we're going to indulge. Yeah. So what's the, what's the, what's the core problem here, right? Yeah. Yeah, social identity is, is, is tough. Like, it's the number of times even myself where I've gone out and it's like, I have a plan and I, I mean, it's not really an issue anymore. Um, if I go out, I generally won't eat out. Uh, but that's cause I've been doing it for like years and years and years. But for the first, like, I want to say seven years, 
you know, you go out with your friends and I'll eat beforehand. And then I get there and all of a sudden I start having all these cravings. It's, it's these like, it's these environmental cues. And like, I don't think people sometimes understand how, how strong environmental cues are and, mm-hmm. and how they trigger like reward signaling and, and reward seeking behavior and like hedonic drive for consumption of highly palatable foods, which are all around you because you're in that place that wants you to order and consume. Right. And then even just your behaviors or your friends, like there's so much research that shows that people tend to conform to the eating habits of their friends. Right. And that kind of boils down to the whole, like, you know, you are, what is it? The product of your five closest friends or something like that. Like, yeah. One, one of those, one of those. Yeah. yeah like that's a heuristic for a reason. There's, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of validity to those statements, you know, even right. though they are a little bit superficial. Right. 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 Yeah. I mean, I agree. I agree. And this is why, again, this is why I like to separate myself from the world that I exist in. Um, you get into patterns. You know, I've done, I've spent four to six months abroad every year for the last nine years. I've lived abroad for over 1300 days. And, um, and I've lived in, what's up? How many islands do you own? I own no islands. (laughs) I own no islands. No, I don't own any property overseas. That's a hard and fast rule. Um, We own, we own a bunch of rental property in and around Ontario, but none overseas. Um, But, you know, it's a, Doing that, living in so many different places, living in so many different environments. I mean, honestly, from um, a cave on an island in Thailand to a little Pueblo in Mexico to big cities, right? And everything in between has taught us, you know, Alice News sitting across from me has taught us exactly what we really love and where we want to live. And picking up and picking up all of our things and moving forces you to reassess how you want to live and what you want to own. We've done that so many times, right? That we're now just so clear on what matters and what doesn't matter to us, right? In terms of community, in terms of people, like I could live anywhere in the world that I want to. And I have, I've lived in multiple islands in Hawaii. I've lived in all of the exotic places, right? You know where I bought a house? less than a 10 minute walk from my parents and my sister Yeah, in, in a community, in a great community where we love our neighbors, where there's a park down the street. I don't want a big house with multiple acres of land in the middle of nowhere. I'd be freaking miserable. But the problem is that there's this dream of ownership, of home ownership, right? The same as there's this dream of getting a college education where we do it at such a young age, where we're made to believe that we should do this stuff at such a young age before we know anything about anything, before we have any real life experiences. And then when we make a decision about where to live, for example, where to buy a property, you're kind of stuck into being right without. Yeah exploring and figuring out whether that's right for you. And so the grass is always going to be greener. You know, if we had bought the exact same house in the exact same location surrounded by the exact same people, if I had bought that when I was 18 years old, for example, um, there was no way that I would have been as happy as I am there now, because now I know what else is out there. And I know that that's what makes me happy. The same kind of thing with college, right? A lot of people get stuck into careers they don't like because they have so much sunk cost because they've gone to school for four years or seven years down a path. And then they realize it's not right for them because they decided on that path way too early before they knew about anything. 
it's a serious problem. And I think, you know, I think friend groups are the same thing. Um, we're, we're made to believe that we should make decisions about how and where we live our life before we understand anything about how we want to live our life. And then we get stuck into that. Man. Yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a, that's a big, big topic. Um, yeah. So like I, I was born in, in Amsterdam in Netherlands and I lived all over the world. I li- I've lived all over the world as well and traveled quite a bit. And it's funny how many people I have heard who, cause like I, I've got a little bit more like traditional values, I'd say like probably um, more conservative, more old. When I say conservative, I don't mean like politically, I just mean like probably a little bit more old school. Um, and the number of times I've heard people literally say like, oh, well, in Europe, they don't treat women very well. I'm just like, where have you been? And they're like, oh, well, I haven't been. It's just, and I'm like, oh, okay. Like, what are you talking about? Oh, you're in Mexico? Isn't it dangerous there? Yeah. No, actually, the Mexican people are the kindest, most thoughtful, most inviting, most generous, most trustworthy, most fun, most energetic people out of anywhere I've ever lived. Yeah. (laughs) When you're actually here, right? Yeah, I mean, it's easy to kind of judge things from from a from a distance, and then you know you get there and you're like, oh, it's not like this at all. And it's, I mean, I've always kind of been a big fan of the trades for that reason, because you get some experience and you know, and maybe you only waste six months or a year instead of four years, right? Or usually you can get a feel of it, you know, after the first couple of months or whatever it is. And and there's there's a handful of things that you can actually do. And I don't see why, I mean, I do see why the university system doesn't adopt that because it'd probably be a substantial loss in, in revenue, but I'm, I'm glad anyways to see, and this is kind of just a total tangent that a lot of stuff is shifting a little bit more online as far as education goes through, through COVID. So, so here, so you brought up, you brought up something cause I know, I know you're an economics geek as well. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I wanted to talk about some of this stuff with you. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Here's, here's a fun experiment to do the math on. Okay. Yeah. Um, instead of going when you, I went to university at 17, right? So instead of going to university, basically I went to university at, at 17, you know, I turned 18 my first year, graduated at 21. Um, my friends who became doctors, lawyers, dentists, whatever, because I'm Jewish. So all of my friends are doctors, lawyers, <laughs> dentists, accountants, <laughs> teachers, yeah. um, and, and a businessman or whatever, right? literally every single one. Um, you know, so they all finished school at 25, 26 years old. And then they went and got real jobs. And, and, you know, most of them are professional trades. So they became a doctor or whatever it is, and they're making a good salary and they're paying off their school debt, whatever. And they paid that off within a couple of years. And then by the time that they were 30, they started putting some money away. Maybe they bought a house outside of Toronto when they started their life, right? As opposed to um, 17 years old, I went and did an apprenticeship in electrical and plumbing and whatever, right? A trade. Mm-hmm. And I was done by the time I was 19. And I was earning eighty to ninety thousand dollars a year, and I was living well below my means. Maybe living at home, maybe living in a starter apartment for fifteen hundred bucks a month. My expenses was again because I was a single guy. I was eating ramen noodles or whatever shit, right? Another thousand bucks a month. Man, so now I'm fifteen hundred a month. These are Toronto prices. Holy smokes! Right. <laughs> so now, well, but you're also getting paid Toronto prices, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So now, so now you now you're putting away let's say 40,000 to $50,000 a year. Yeah. If you're smart, right? When you're 19 years old and that money starts compounding, <clears throat> do the math, put 
$50,000 into a spreadsheet and add another $50,000 every year, or better yet, add 50 divided by 12, you know, every month, right? And compound that at 7% a year and see how much money you have when you're 60 years old. Purely because you started six years before the other guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's yeah, super it's, it's interesting when you watch those numbers. Yeah, it's, it's insane. It's super interesting when you watch those numbers. Because if you're, if you're smart, right, and you put that money away and you invest it properly at a very, very young age, if you've got $50,000, if you've got $200,000 compounding at 7.5%, 8% year after year, at 22, 21 years old, like you're good, man. (laughs) You know, like you don't need to make $250,000 a year. And by the way, if you're in a trade, by the time you're 25, you're making 120 to 150 anyway. Yeah. But it's, it's really interesting to do that math. Yeah. Well, there, there's so much reform that hasn't necessarily happened, even though the, the economic landscape has changed so dramatically, right? Like you look at the jobs, you look at technology and just how everything has changed so much. And uh, I mean, yeah, e- even, even how people look at fitness, like you look at how people consume information about fitness or nutrition or training or any of that stuff. And it's like, where do they get their stuff? I mean, the vast majority of people don't read books. I, I can't remember what the actual statistic is, but I know it's like oh, it's over funny. 90% of people don't even finish the first chapter of a book. Yep. So it's like, you know, people are always like, Oh, do your research, do your research. And it's like, well, even if you did your research, you'd probably only read, you probably wouldn't even get through the abstract, right. Yeah. Is realistically what it is. And so it's like, they're, they're, commu- they're communicating through, you know, Instagram and YouTube and, and these really accessible mediums. And then it's like, okay, well, why hasn't the university adapted to make more video courses or, mm-hmm. you know, just, just pure audio courses? Like how many people listen to podcasts? Like you, you know what I mean? Like how many podcasts have you done right now? You, I, don't, I don't even know if you know how many appearances you made, but the number of times that, you know, you've spoken and, and people can listen to all of that, just literally yeah. like that. They don't even need to know you. I so, think, I think there's a, a, it's funny. I actually put out an audio course a number of years ago. Yeah. And it was called from certification to qualification. And it was meant to bridge that gap because the certifications do such an unbelievably shit job of preparing people to work in the field. And it was, and so it was meant to bridge that gap and um, it sold really, really well. But I'll tell you, if I could, here's why I don't sell it anymore. And here's what I think happened. Um, I would love to do audio courses. I was motivated to do it by, you know, these yogis and stuff like that who would sell meditation after meditation, after meditation, after meditation, and they'd sell CDs, right? The problem is when audio plain formats became condensed and then eventually digital, the value of audio to sell basically went to zero. If, if I could give you, I actually, I kid you not, I looked into buying up because I'm like, there's got to be just landfills of Sony Walkman tape cassette players just sitting there. I looked in to see if I could buy thousands of Sony Walkmans so that I could produce tapes. And I was going to do a membership program where when you signed up, I mailed you a Sony Walkman in the mail. 
<laughs> and then I mailed you a new cassette tape every single month. Because in order to sell audio, in order to sell anything, there's got to be something tangible, right? Which is why even fitness advice, like, you know, with digital stuff, it eventually becomes a race to the bottom. It eventually becomes decentralized. And then the value gets seen in other places. And, and that's why in the coming years, there's, there's a pretty serious redefinition of what a fitness professional is and isn't afoot. And, um, and it's because, you know, the information is worth nothing, right? It's, it's, it's democratized. Like a, a, a computer algorithm can build a better program than 98% of personal trainers right now. It's yeah. just, that's not what's valuable. Um, yeah. And so it was the same thing with audio. I agree. Audio is unbelievably valuable. The problem is you can't ship it to somebody's house anymore. And as a result, it can't really be sold on mass. If I could sell CDs, I'd sell, I'd be selling thousands of CDs a month in a heartbeat. Yeah. Perception of value is crazy. Cause yeah. even like, even if you're looking at <clears throat> hiring a personal trainer, right? Mm -hmm. It's like you go to hire a personal trainer and you're like, usually they'll base it off price. And it's like, okay, well, are you paying for an hour or are you paying for results and experience, you know? And yeah. there's a big disconnect between those two things. But anyways, uh, I know we're actually coming up on the hour mark and I want to be respectful of your time. So um, you don't necessarily have to answer that question. Is, is there anything you wanted to say, I guess, before, uh, before we end off? We'll, we'll also do all like the whole Instagram website, all that stuff as well. Yeah. I mean, Instagram's all I care about. Uh, no, man. I mean, this is fun. I feel like we ran the gamut here. It was, it was good. Like I said, <laughs> yeah. I, I selfishly wanted to get to know you better. Um, and, um, and you know, I feel like you lived up to the hype. So I appreciate you very much. Oh, well, there you go. I even did my hair. No, no, it was great having you on, man. It was great chatting. <laughs> um, yeah, it was definitely an interesting chat. So, so where can people find you then on Instagram? Instagram is it's coach Goodman. Okay, cool. So, and your your website, the PTDC? Yeah, you can check that out if you want. It's not our focus right now. We've got, you know, we've got an archive of a thousand articles or so on there. You're going to check it out, but we're not, we're not um, adding to it that much right now, if, if at all. Cool. So all right, there's well, lots of great stuff on there. Don't get me wrong, but, um, <laughs> but it, just don't expect anything new. I don't want to, I don't want to set those expectations. Yeah, totally. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely go and uh, give them a follow, reach out, say what's up. And thanks so much for listening, guys. I will see you on the next podcast.